I think in many regards, what what is being deconstructed now more than anything else is white evangelical patriarchy. And so, so many people I work with that are, are post-church or, you know, they're not post-Jesus um, or post the biblical concept of Christian community, but are post-evangelical expressions of, of the church and what they were raised in. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Josh Porter. He's a teaching pastor in Washington, musician, and formerly with the band Showbread. He's authored several books, including Punk Rock vs. The Lizard People. Josh, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, dude, thanks for having me. Well, besides living in probably one of the most beautiful areas of, of the country, can you just kind of lay out for us what today feels like on the along the border of, of Washington and Oregon? Well, it's really cold. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure, you know, there are people who live in colder climates. They're like, wow, this guy's he's a wuss. He's complaining about his, you know, 32 degree weather. Um, I like where we live. You know, the there is a shared, I guess I should say mostly shared um, disdain for the perpetual gray rain out here in the Pacific Northwest. But I like that kind of weather and not because I'm all goth at heart, but just because it feels um, cozy and accommodating to me. I'm not a summer person. So the people who live in the Pacific Northwest, they count down the days to summer and then they all, you know, rush out into the sun as if this is their only chance to absorb any vitamin D. Me, 
I like it when it's gray and rainy, and today's one of those days, so I appreciate it. So uh, you're, you're pastoring a church in, in Vancouver, Washington area. Tell us about the church and, and y'all's focus. I didn't set out to plant a church in Vancouver, Washington. I actually uh, was, you know, I'm from rural Georgia. My wife is from the Pacific Northwest. We traveled together for a long time while I was a um, full-time musician. And when the music stuff kind of slowed to a stop, we realized we didn't want to live in Georgia. I've never been a fan of Georgia, but I lived there for, I don't know, some 20 plus years, 28 years or so. We decided to uh, head out to the Pacific Northwest, which was the only other place that we had with any kind of connection. Her family was here and we knew a few people here and it could have been anywhere. We just picked this place. And um, we immediately immersed ourselves in a particular church in Portland, Oregon. And it was kind of um, something that she and I actually sat down and consciously had a conversation. We had not soured on church or uh, were reticent to in, invest in a church per se, but when you travel for like nine or 10 months out of the year, you uh, it, maintaining any kind of community life in a, in a church is all but impossible. So we were severely out of practice and we sat down together and said, if we're going to go to this place, let's actually try to um, make a sincere go of it. Meaning not neither she nor myself are particularly gregarious by nature. Or um, I don't think that we're uh, like <laughs> agoraphobic shut-ins or anything like that. But we're not the type of people that just walk around a room and collect friends immediately. So we said let's let's make an honest go of the whole church thing and we immediately kind of said yes to invitations and you know joined the small group model we signed up to serve we vacuumed the floors all that kind of thing and then over the course of like a couple of years i had gone from the guy who vacuums the floors after everyone leaves to i got a job as like a videographer for the church um making short films about community groups and events this is a really you know like a kind of a campus mega church model out in portland oregon and befriended you know the staff and the pastors and they eventually kind of i don't want to use the word pressure but they invited me to consider the possibility of becoming a pastor and and then I eventually ended up working as a pastor at the church and went to seminary. And then they asked if I would go down the street and plant a church in Vancouver, Washington. This is actually like 10 minutes across the river from where the church uh, I was working at in Portland um, was. And I'm not the kind of church planter that was like, man, I had a vision in the night and God gave me a, a heart, as they like to say, for the city of Vancouver. And I had all this ambition. I'm not like the type A personality or the, the kind of archetypical church planter that I met in seminary. Um, I was more like, oh, I like what we're doing here in Portland. If you'd like me to go down the street and try to do it there, I can attempt to do that. So that was about um, seven years ago. And we, we still have a church. We we still have a church and and i don't know if you've noticed but some weird stuff has happened in the world over the last uh seven years so it's yeah. it's semi-impressive that it i guess statistically most church plants don't make it past year one but we made it past year one and 
all the other weird stuff that's happened in the world. Yeah, and just quick, you know, disclaimer to you: the uh, state of Georgia tourism actually sponsors this podcast. So, um, <laughs> look, I'm being have... honest, Georgia. I was there for 20 plus years. You can't fault me for that. <laughs> Good friends of the program from Georgia. Uh, just you know, if you've ever been to the uh, the Northwest, you understand why people go there and then never come back. So. Um, let, well, let's shift to your book, um, Death to Deconstruction. This is an invitation to reclaim faithfulness as an act of rebellion. You wrote, everyone knows someone who is formerly Christian. It could be someone you've read about, someone you love. It could be you. In my personal experience with The Great Predator and through deconstruction, I found the logic and candid, straightforward sincerity are ha not hallmarks of deconstruction dialogue, nor a frenzied religious pushback. Um, this book is is obviously a, a personal journey, aspects of which we'll we'll get into momentarily. But but tell us about your sense of calling to write about this particular topic now. Well, I had had what began to feel like innumerable conversations with people all the way back to when I was traveling full time as a musician and someone who was candid about their you know discipleship to Jesus and uh, to the point where I'm now a pastor and having coffee with young people, peers, people older than me on a, on a regular basis. And the, I realized that deconstruction is a, something of a buzzword. And because of that, it's misleading. It's become a junk drawer term and an umbrella term. And it means different things to different people, but to paint with broad strokes, at least for a second, the deconstruction conversation colored so many of the different meetings I was having or stories that I was hearing from different people. And what I gathered over the course of, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations with people who had either entirely deconstructed their faith and then deconverted from Christianity and in many cases from theism altogether, or they were people who were in the throes of deconstruction already past what I would call, you know, historic Orthodox Christianity and into something else. There were people on the precipice, and then there were other people who were kind of um, watching all of it unfold amongst loved ones or peers or people they've looked up to. And obviously there's lots of questions and tensions and hurt. There's a lot of hurt and trauma. And uh, the, the recurring motif that would surface in these conversations was the question posed to me, how are you still a Christian? Because, the, you know, I was hearing stories about um, church hurt and religious trauma about fundamentalist upbringing about you know disillusionment with hypocrisy and American evangelicalism um, the failure of religious leaders and um, Christian figureheads and all of these things culminating in a recipe for disaster people feeling as if they just can't do it anymore and so they would bounce these stories off of me and I would be able to relate and and totally sincerely not as a put on not as a like yeah man I know how it feels in order to like gain some kind of in in these conversations I just you know I was raised in uh, rural southeast Georgia in a conservative fundamentalist context I was exposed to all the kinds of hypocrisy and hurt that one usually accumulates over the years in church and kind of what my personality is wired to a fault for sure to go against the grain of, you know, homogeneity and, um, and, you know, I would traveled in punk rock circles playing in bands or a band for more than a decade, almost two decades and was 
exposed to you know culture at large around the world and different religions different world views and i asked all the same questions i experienced many of the same doubts and i here i am as a a pastor of a small church neighborhood church in vancouver washington and in what i would describe as you know like more rooted in the ancient historic apostolic you know orthodox Christian movement than I've ever been. And so the question was constantly, how, how is that possible? What makes us different? And so I set out to write a book that would kind of just be theological arguments against, you know, common reasons cited for deconstruction. And as I, you know, began to outline that book, I realized that two dozen of that book already exist. And many of them are, are quite good. And I began to then instead write some kind of strange hybrid of like memoir and anecdotal, you know, observational rants and, you know, I think theological arguments, all that stuff's still in there. But I ended up with this book that when I finished it and <laughs> handed it in, into the publisher, I was like, well, this isn't what I said I was going to write, but hopefully <laughs> it's it's still useful to someone. And because I think that, that the, the book of theological arguments is totally necessary and I can hand people three or four really good ones that I already knew of. I didn't think that I had anything new or worthwhile to contribute to that conversation so what i have is like a, a particular aesthetic and a, a story that i you know is at least to some extent unique to me in that it's my story and then the the weird death to deconstruction book came out of that we can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors baptist seminary of kentucky how does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Yeah, so this is, you know, as you, you alluded to, um, deconstruction has become this this buzzword, buzzword that is thrown around these days as theological ammunition from the right, left, and everywhere in between. So I wonder if you can define for us what you mean by deconstruction. Yeah, I mean, in the the context of the book, I use it several different ways. The, the easiest way for me to define it, and the, what I do in like chapter one or two of the book is, you know, the deconstruction as a junk drawer term in pop culture spirituality that describes the process by which people who were once Christian embark on the journey to jettison most or all of the unique aspects of their Christianity, whether that's like, you know, I don't know, a certain perspective on the scriptures or a certain perspective on Jesus of Nazareth or a certain perspective on the church. And usually these things are stripped down for parts and then in their place, there is erected some kind of uh, what I call like a personal pan spirituality where, you know, you borrow from different traditions and usually kind of catered to the, the deconstructionists personal preference and something that suits um, their, not, not just their preferences, but the unique uh, 
uh, hurt out of which they're operating. So it's basically the process of tearing it down and getting something out or building something else out as a result. Um, and the common pushback I got right away for calling the book Death to Deconstruction is, well, what about good deconstruction? And isn't deconstruction a necessary thing for all disciples of Jesus? And and why do you want to, you know, arm the militant kind of um, fundamentalists or evangelicals or however you want to characterize them? Why do you want to like uh, buy into that kind of language? And the answer I gave is and give is that if I were to call the book something like death to fundamentalism or death to evangelicalism or whatever, death to politicized Christianity, all the, all the different kinds of things that I do critique at length in the book, that would be a boring title. <laughs> and I, and it would be such, I think, a, an accommodating title. It would be such a tame and, uh, you know, it would get a lot of people saying, yeah, heck yeah, and then not read the book. Um, and I have always aesthetically been drawn to um, things that are provocative and things that uh, kind of dare the reader to read at all, uh, almost like a, I, I like the idea of being challenged from the outset. I like the idea of feeling a little like, wait, what the heck, what is that supposed to mean? And I don't like how that sits with me. And I want to understand that perspective um, for better or for worse. That's the kind of art I'm drawn to. So across the landscape of the book, I use deconstruction as kind of in that same, you know, pop culture junk drawer way. But I also use it in bigger, broader ways that um, the book kind of unpacks across the length of its narrative. Um, and most of that has to do with my story and my own kind of private struggles against things like despair and self-loathing. And so deconstruction becomes something more than just the pop culture conversation and something more ominous and looming. And I thought that that was interesting. I thought it would be cool to write something that is semi-narrative that defines destruction, deconstruction one way on page two, but then by the end of the book, it's taken on all these different kinds of um, meanings and some more profound than others. It's become something much bigger than the pop culture conversation. But in order to understand that, you actually have to read the book. And I like the idea, I mean, maybe this is immaturity on my part, but I like the idea of provoking the audience and having, you know, it's exciting to me, the idea that people would hear the name of the book and be like, what the heck? I don't like it. I don't appreciate that but then it generates some kind of conversation around the book itself you know what i mean yeah no i do i mean so give our our audience a little bit of a peek into behind the curtain if you will so like like i read every single book of a guest that we have on like I, i'm not going to have somebody on that i don't actually read the content of what they're writing and we have good connections with a lot of publishers who will pitch books to us and um your publisher actually reached out to us and we're like here's a book here's a title and i was like I don't know. You're going to have to send me a copy of that book <laughs> I was like, because when I read it on face value, I'm like, I don't know if I could support like that idea, but um, there is so much of this that is, it is close to your personal story, which is, I'd, I'd love for us to go there. This book is visceral. You you talk about the plan you put in place to, to kill yourself in 2018. This is obvious pivotal juncture in your life um do you mind walking us through where you were and, and what you were processing at at the time and why you felt like it was important to put as part of this book yeah i didn't want to put that in the book uh for a few reasons one this is kind of i guess embarrassing and 
uh, I didn't think of when I set out to outline the book. And then even when I had written uh, uh, the first draft of the manuscript, none of that stuff was in there. And I completed a draft of the book and, you know, it still has a lot of the narrative, it still has a lot of story. And I still thought of it as pretty candid and, and honest. And I realized that the story kind of concluded happily and maybe with a little too much closure it, it without the um the whole the motif about uh whether or not i was going to kill myself in the book it reads as if it's like the story of you know one young man who grew up in a bad church context and had to wrestle through all these things but then decided he was going to be a christian became a pastor and lived happily ever after and I realized after I'd finished that draft and I had not excluded anything on purpose for, you know, my own sake or because I thought it was too raw for the book or something like that. It just, it wasn't on my mind when I wrote the book or the first draft of the book. And the truth is that the, maybe the greatest deconstruction struggle of my entire life to date um, was after I had, you know, committed very sincerely and very firmly to the ancient historic, you know, Orthodox Christian tradition after I had settled to some extent, you know, I'm, I'm uh, obviously using broad strokes here and all of us continue to journey and evolve and mature in faith. So you, you never completely settle the book on any given theological position, I hope, in that you're open to um, learning more from the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and blah, 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 blah. But I, you know, I, I felt pretty confident, I guess I would say, about what I believed about the Bible, what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about the church, and had felt that way for years. I felt confident and comfortable enough to, you know, teach out of those positions as, you know, my job is to teach the Bible. And um, I felt that I could articulate what I believe and that I believed it very sincerely. And I'm, you know, I'm, this is as someone who um, is invested in spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. I wasn't like, uh, oh, I'm just, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And I can't remember the last time I prayed. All those seasons of my life had come and gone at this point, or at least that kind of them had come and gone at this point. And yet there was a time in my life circa, you know, 2018, like you said, where I was prepared to undergo what I call in the book, the ultimate deconstruction and where I had more despair and unhappiness than I have ever had in my entire life. So the honest framework of the story, I think completely told, was that I had resolved to be a Christian. Spoiler alert, you know, I I embarked on a journey to deconstruct my faith. It lasted for several years, kind of came and went in and out of different perspectives. Um, I had resolved to be a Christian, you know, became a pastor, went to seminary, all that stuff. And then um in entered into one of the darkest seasons of my life altogether and so i think the honest story is not that deconstruction comes it concludes you resolve your issues and then you follow jesus faithfully happily ever after but that all of life kind of oscillates in and out of seasons of what i've been describing lately as like deconversion moments in which uh it feels as if you might be prepared to leave the things that mean the most to you behind. And that could be, you know, abandoning certain theological perspectives, or it could be abandoning life itself. And, um, 
And all of that can be carried out faithfully, or you can navigate those things faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. So, you know, I'm, I'm still here, uh, another spoiler alert, and I'm still a Christian, um, but I understand that there will likely be, you know, seasons of suffering. If I live long enough, there will probably be seasons of suffering, maybe even to rival the last season. And life is chaotic and unpredictable, and I have no control over these things, or, or, or at least not over all of these things. So to me, including the whole motif about struggling with suicide or suicidal ideation or however you want to describe it, was an honest way to tell the deconstruction story. And, you know, some people are like, oh, man, he put that on page one just to disarm the reader. And it really wasn't that because it wasn't there in the beginning. Um, but I think it is a way that, you know, the, I've heard from many people who are like, oh, man, screw this book because I this title is so confrontational. and I don't like the way it sounds and I don't know what that means. And then if you read the the opening sentence of the book, I think that it's an indication that maybe the book won't be exactly what you expected it to be. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You know, one of the fascinating pieces about the book is you do cover some of the common topics and questions that people who are deconstructing their faith come across. Um, and so much of it has to do with how a lot of people are raised to understand the Bible, its its nature, its purpose, its function. Um, you know, for example, you know, it's like, I hold the Bible in the highest regard. I, I believe, uh, the Bible is God's word given through godly inspiration to help us better understand who God is and who we are in relationship to God, each other, and our, our purpose as divine image bearers. Um, but I also, you know, believe the Bible is not the full expression of who God is and how God functions in the world, because that's not the nature I believe it was written, you know, to a particular group of people in a particular context. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that the Bible is God breathed and divinely inspired. It just means that um, we're not called to worship the Bible as if it is God, because we also believe in the living word of God through the Holy Spirit, you know, it's beyond the scripture itself. But yeah. so many people are kind of raised within this 
particular view of scripture that it's almost like if you don't see the Bible in the way that we see the Bible, that your faith is void and that you can't view things within scripture that that need critical thought, such as the gender exclusive name nature of the Levitical laws and Paul's writings and the righteous justification of violence of this idea of people who believe they were doing the right thing, even though it might not have been actually God ordained. So why is the Bible and the view of Bible, do you believe it's paramount to, to the deconstruction process, both for those that are kind of against the idea and those that maybe struggle to go through it? Oh, I absolutely do. I, and I'm speaking from personal experience and from anecdotal evidence. It, it seems to me that um, understanding the Bible as, you know, inspired by God and authoritative, how, you know, however, whatever theological words you want to puff up around it to describe and understand something so complicated as and understanding the bible as literary as a work of art as complex as dense you know as necessary the process of interpretation is in studying and understanding the scriptures many of us were given paradigms where these two things could not coexist you know the um i'm you know simplifying things here but i was i was presented with a, a model for understanding scripture as um that they wouldn't have used this kind of language, but as something that's literal and linear and more like an encyclopedia of moral truth or a, a handbook for life in the modern world, um, something that you can mine for pull quotes and say, it says here, do this, so do this. And the tradition in which I was raised was deeply allergic to understanding the Bible as creative, as artistic, as literary as complex, you know, as metaphorical or open to interpretation in some places and um, kind of candid in other places. And in the tradition in which I was raised, metaphor means not true. Um, artistic means fantasy. So to use that kind of language to uh, describe the scriptures was terrifying because, oh, okay, well, if it's artistic, then that just means you can take it however you want it and run with it as if, you know, we have absolutely no grounding in the Christian tradition to work out interpretation together. <laughs> and I've seen in, you know, so many people struggling with the scriptures in ways that are completely understandable to the modern sensibility in ways that, you know, like I don't mind admitting the, the problems that I have with the scriptures or the things that I've yet to resolve or that I don't understand this or that passage or, you know, I think I have a working perspective on this particular thing, but this other thing, I'm not sure what I think about it yet. And yet understanding the whole of scripture as, you know, I liked all the language that you use as, you know, God breathed, of course, and um, but as also a work in need of communal interpretation. And by that, I don't mean that like, oh, we all sit down and we just decide what the Bible means. But I think that, you know, the language I use in the book is that it's the complex artistry of the, the scriptures is just too profound for one mind to hold. And that's why we have, you know, centuries of the Jesus movement of people who have been wrestling with what the scriptures say and what they actually intend to say. And um, it seems daunting to sit down as somebody in 2023 and say, oh man, the Bible's written in languages that I don't speak 
and, you know, into a culture in which I have no access to which I have no access in a different part of the world in a different time and place to a different audience with different motivations and different some of the genres that the scriptures op in, in which the scriptures operate are no longer exist. So how in the world could we even begin to access the actual contents of the scriptures? But in a lot of ways, we're um, better off than we have been and that we have access to so much new understanding of things like language and history and anthropology, you know, like archaeology. And um, we have resources. I mean, for Pete's sake, we have like the Bible Project. You can go on YouTube and watch the, the most uh, sophisticated Bible scholarship distilled down into a three-minute cartoon that's better than, you know, my 45-minute sermons on Sunday. So we we have access to resources um, that enable us to, with the community of God's people, uh, understand what the Bible is in the first place so that we can understand what's in it. And, and when we begin to understand the Bible as Yes, absolutely. Inspired by God, authoritative, how, what, you know, like all these things that have been important to the Jesus tradition for centuries, but also as um, a work of supreme literary sophistication, a work of art, uh, you know, most of the Bible is, isn't discourse at all. I mean, there's more poems in the Bible than discourse, and most of it's a story, and, and some of the story operates in genres we don't have. It. So it, requires what I describe as the spiritual discipline of art appreciation to understand the Bible in the first place. But many in kind of the, at least in the modern Western evangelical tradition, have not been given a paradigm for the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. And um, we've kind of moved creativity uh, either out of the um, church conversation altogether, or we've domesticated it and homogenized it to where it can only look a certain way. And so it seems to me that it shouldn't be that surprising that then we open the scriptures and go, what the heck is this thing? What is this poem? And how? what is this story? And why is God having a conversation with Satan about oppressing this guy called Job? And um, and these are very re reasonable objections or questions or wrestling that people are having to carry out with the scriptures. I just think that it's not necessarily as scary, as scary and as daunting as we have been led to believe it is. And when we conceive that the Bible is this work of literary sophistication, it actually becomes, for me anyway, like kind of exciting and freeing to explore what the Bible has to say with an advanced commitment to receive what the Bible actually teaches as truth while we understand that it might take some work to get there. Yeah, I think in many regards, what, what is being deconstructed now more than anything else is white evangelical patriarchy. And so, so many people I work with that are, are post-church or, you know, they're not post-Jesus um, or post the biblical concept of Christian community, but are post evangelical expressions of of the church and what they were raised in so how do we as the church wrestle with that as you know we hold many people still hold fast to many of the ideals that um, so many theologically um, disagree with um, across different traditions within faith right so you know, just as we talk about the Bible specifically, you know, it's like this idea that holds true with that evangelicalism around um, inerrancy and infallibility. I mean, it's 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 a concept that's only less than, you know, 150 years old, really, the last 
50 years it's it's become prevalent among that that group so what what do we do with all that how do how do we help people that are really honestly they're they're deconstructing one form of the church but not necessarily their actual faith in christ well i think you know the 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 easy answer to say but not to <laughs> not not in practice or not so much in practice is to embody a better way um and that takes a, a long time i think and by embody a better way, I mean that there are more and more expressions of church that from the outside looking in seem, you know, terribly traditional. You show up on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or whenever it is that this church gathers, and you probably see all the staples that you expect to observe in a church service or gathering. They sing songs, somebody teaches from the Bible, they pray, and, you know, it'll look a little different from tradition to tradition, but... And then also within that, um, you know, like uh, the what you expect to see within traditional church gatherings, I think more and more we're seeing a lived expression um, that deviates from that uh, kind of, I mean, I, I, I hate to use so bold a term, but that kind of corrupted or tainted um, American evangelicalism that is that is you know the kind of patriarchal and um, politicized uh, right-leaning conservative fundamentalist the things that have kind of alienated so many people especially young people from the church um, marriage to the state and emphasis on um, ideals in many cases are kind of new in church history but emphasizes if they are fundamental to Christianity itself and um, corruption at all levels of leadership or toxic leadership, stuff that now is is um, less behind closed doors and more in the public square with the advent of things like, you know, the Christianity Today's podcast documentary of um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And the, those kind of public scandals of megachurch pastors falling for moral failure and those kinds of things. Um, I think that we should, we can and should expect the church to be a broken place because it's full of people. And people are broken. And we can and should expect that in any given community in which we decide to participate, that we will bump up against disagreement and interpersonal conflict again, because there are people there. But more and more, I'm seeing, honestly, and this is based on my own narrow perspective, where I'm at in the country and the world, but I'm seeing expressions of church willing to embody um, grace without compromise, meaning that there is an openness and accommodation to people of all different kinds of backgrounds and stories and perspectives on Christianity. They're all over the map and what they think about Jesus. Our church is like this, and it's a small church. There's like 100 people in it, and most of them are younger than me, um, a lot of very young families, and they range from, I don't even know if I believe in God, all the way to, you know, like, oh, I was raised in the church, and I've been in church every Sunday my whole life, and everything in between, and I'm finding that there is a willingness to to enter into the traditional expressions of church, like they, they come on Sunday, they um, will sing the songs, and open the Bible, and read along with me, and they take communion, and that kind of stuff, um, and also wrestle with like the the big cultural questions and and the deep personal questions. And we can allow space for those kinds of questions to be explored in a sincere way while also embodying a kind of commitment to what we believe to be true about things like Jesus and the scriptures. And I don't see any reason to 
you know, weaponize what I believe to be true theologically, just as I really don't see any reason to compromise what I believe theologically. I think that it's entirely possible. I would not have believed this at a different point in my life because I had not seen it to be so. But I I believe that I can hold something to be true theologically and that I can, you know, like order my lifestyle around what I believe to be true theologically and that I can articulate it to people who are interested to hear about it or or who ask me about it and that I can do all those things without being a jerk um, and without being a fundamentalist or exclusivist. And, and by that, I just mean like you're in or you're out um, that I can even hold like hardcore beliefs to be true and things that are divisive to be true and have conversations with people who disagree with me or share life with people who disagree with me. And um, obviously a tremendous amount of ink has been spilled about like, oh my God, what's going to happen to the church in America? And is it going to be shattered by, you know, like quote unquote Christian nationalism and the um, post-Trump America and, you know, the politicized evangelicalism and Obviously, these things have done such a tremendous amount of damage. We won't know how far reaching for a while. But it seems to me that the church and sincere expressions of the church that are so far removed from politicized evangelicalism, so far removed from the kind of Trumpian, patriarchal, whatever, um, and yet entirely anchored in orthodoxy and in a you know a certain um perspective of jesus as lord and the scriptures as inspire all those things uh th that expression of church is here and that expression of church is finding um or or rather people with ears to hear are finding it so i feel i mean like i'm pessimistic by nature and i feel less pessimistic about the church than a lot of what i read about the church i think that when we embody a better way, and it will never be perfect, but when we set out to embody a better way um, for the long haul, not with lots of bells and whistles and cool videos and live streaming and all that stuff, but just a lived expression of faithfulness to Jesus, warts and all, um, it, you know, the stuff Jesus said about the kingdom spreading and the conti kingdom continuing to grow turns out to be true. Our guest is Josh Porter. The book is Death to De Deconstruction. If you want to stay connected with Josh, visit joshuasporter.com. Uh, Josh, it's it's been a joy uh, conversing with you. Thank you for leveraging your story and creating authentic community as a safe space for people who are processing their faith in the most difficult times of their journey. Oh, thanks, dude. Thanks for having me. It was fun talking. I, you know, I tend to ramble, so I apologize, but... Thanks for uh, humoring me. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. 
Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.